It's sacred, it's holy, it's life-giving. It's uh, instructive, it corrects us. And so, Lord, we need it. But we need not just words, we need this wonderful presence of your Holy Spirit that speaks these words into our very hearts and souls. So guide us tonight. Bless this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we go through this study of Hebrews, I think this is technically the third week, but sort of the second week as well. Um, And as we do this over the summer, if you follow through with the reading plan, there is one thing that you're going to note Hebrews is all about. This is essential. It's about Christ. The introduction, in fact, last week, chapter 1, stated very clearly for us that Christ is God's final word to man. Christ is God. And it is utterly foolish to ignore it. The writer says, because we cannot exist without Christ. It's a, it's a basic dishonesty to pretend that we can. And therefore, if Christ be God, as the letter so clearly claims, he is the certain one, the authority one, and it is foolish to ignore him. That was chapter one. And so we step into chapter two that now identifies or identifies also not just his divinity, but identifies his humanity. Now we have to understand this as well. When we talk about God and this God person, this human person, this isn't some sort of 50-50 deal. This isn't God just sort of being God when he needs to be and human when he needs to be. No, when he entered on our planet and he lives among us now, he is 100% God all the time. He is 100% man all the time. Little big for our heads to adjust to, perhaps, but there's our reality. And we should not, or could not, or will lose something if we do, reduce him to something other than that 100%, 100% equation. But this morning, we're looking at chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, where Christ is defined by his humanity. And one of his significant roles is that he is set before us as our mediator before God. Because when people are in trouble, we crave a mediator, some kind at least. You ever been involved in an automobile accident? And your estimation, and through your head, it was entirely the other driver's fault? Been there? But apparently the other driver does not feel the same way. And how do you know this? Because you were served papers which informed that you were being sued for damages. Now, this may have been the first time that you have been sued, and and you are, to say the least, a bit bothered by it all. I mean, after all, who likes to have anyone angry at them and want your money? But you soon realize with some significant comfort that you are safe because this is not a horror story for you because you have a mediator your insurance company, who also wants to protect their money. You can turn it all over to them, and they will handle the matter. That's the deal with mediators. It's interesting how this plays out in much of our lives, though, this need for a mediator, I mean, because there's a, there's a human propensity, a rationalization that kicks in when we get into trouble, or in this context, let's call it sin. 
It's, it's that we are most likely to start looking for someone or something to help us out. Maybe blame is the more accurate here. So we start to look for a mediator because the cause of our sin, in our case, well, we hate to admit this, but we know that God has a different view of our sin than we may have. After all, we see our accidents through different lenses. And so we invite in our best mediators. They have their own titles. For example, there's Mr. Rationalization. We'll chat about him. There's our poor me lie line or the, or the devil made me do it excuse or whatever we can come up with to cover our butts. We'll find a way to sort of squeeze out of the trouble that we just got ourselves into. But in the end, they are lousy mediators always because in the end, they only expose our guilt. After we've done all our fast talking, we still come to the end of the story and we find we stand there exposed as a result of the things that we have done. Now, the ancient world looked to angels for this service. Angels were the demigods of the Romans and the Greeks. But the writer of Hebrews will argue that angels will never do as mediators. And the reason is simple. No angel has ever been a human. No angel has ever stood where we stood or where we stand. But Jesus, the Son of God, has And just how fully he became human, well, that's our journey as we strike off into Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Now, there's an intriguing uh, pattern that develops throughout this passage. At least three times we're led along the course of our Lord's earthly ministry, viewing it from three different points of view. At the end of each trip, we come up against the bloody cross, the point of suffering. It's just not pretty. God has planted the cross in this passage three different times to indicate that whatever the value may be in the life of our Lord Jesus, it is made available to us by means of his death. He came to live in order that he might die, and he had you and me in mind. In the holy anguish that is the cross, he poured out his life in order that we may have it. So, let's look at the first of three reasons why Jesus Christ became a man. It starts with Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. Let's listen to this. Good morning, Hillcrest. I'm Laura Stackrock, and I'm the kids pastor here at Hillcrest, and I'm very excited to share the Word of God with you this morning. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 18. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything that is subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, this, this section declares very clearly that Jesus Christ became a man in order to recapture our lost identity, our lost destiny. No angel could take Christ's place, for God had never given the right to govern the universe to angels, but to we humans. The writer quotes David's cry, What is man that thou art mindful of him? I think too often when we read that, we read it in kind of a demeaning sort of way. What's man that you're mindful of him? No, the context of this is what is man that that you are so impressed with what's going on or what you have created in him that you're raising him up, that you remember him and his place, the possibility that he can be in God's creation. And so here's David. Out beneath a star-studded sky, looking up into the majesty of the heavens, and feeling his own significance. He has a place in this world. And he asks, where's man's place in the universe? And by the Spirit, he answers his own question. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor, and you put everything under their feet. See, the point is clear. When David says all things, he means all things, everything. For he adds, in putting everything under them, God has left nothing that is not subject to them. Here was our intended destiny, our authorized dominion. We were made originally to be kings and queens over all of God's work. But our authority was a designated authority. We were still to be subject to the God who indwelt us. We were to be the means by which the invisible God became visible to his creations. God had a great plan for us. We were to be the manifestation of God's own life which dwelt within our human spirit. So as long as we were subject to the dominion of God within us, we would be able to exercise dominion over all creation. But, buts are not as fun. But we now, in this present time, understand that due to Adam's sin, we were given a limited dominion, this earth, this tiny planet. And we are also given a limited physical body by which our dominion could be exercised. This limitation is described as being lower than the angel's. But the passage goes on to describe man's present state, his limitations, for he says, obviously, yet at present we do not see everything subjected to them. Watching one newscast makes something very clear. We do not yet see uh, everything in subjection to Christ. Our world is in a mess. We humans attempt to exercise our dominion, but we no longer can do so adequately. Though we have never forgotten the position of God, that, that God gave us, something is planted within us that reminds us of our, of our loss, the stuff in the past that got misplaced by sin. For throughout the history of our human race, we carry this dream, something of this dream, this need for dominion, this need slash for control over the earth and the universe. One author said it this way, This is why we cannot keep off the highest mountain. 
We've got to get up there. Though we have not lost the thing up there, and know that when we get there, we'll only see what the bear saw, the other side of the mountain. But we've got to be there. We've got to explore the depths of the sea. We have to get out into space. Why? Because there's something in us that needs to conquer. The trouble is, when we humans try to accomplish this now, we often cause more trouble than we conquer. When we humans try to accomplish this, we only see that we set up ourselves for greater problems than we set out to try to solve or take care of. For our ability to exercise dominion is lost or at best severely damaged. Like Humpty Dumpty, we've experienced a great fall. And all our human attempts cannot put it back together again. Therefore, things get out of balance. This is why we are confronted with an increasingly serious situation in our day. This is what keeps our conversations going around coffee pots. While trying to solve one problem, we only expose another. Talk to any environmentalists. They'll talk to you about that gladly. Talk to our First Nations people, particularly now. Or what happens when we try to protect the individual rights of everyone? Well, talk to our female athletes as they compete in an unfair competition with biological men. The history of man is one of continually creating crisis by attempts to exercise dominion and control. Go back into history to the earliest writings, the most ancient of history, and the amazing thing is this, that humans were wrestling with the same moral problems than that we are wrestling with today. We have made wonderful advances in technology, good and bad, but have made absolutely zero progress when it comes to moral relationships. Somewhere we humans have lost our connection, our relationship, a level of intimacy with God. And the fall of man is the only adequate explanation of this. Sin has entered the world. Sin has entered our world. And since then, the universe is stamped with a moral hopelessness. Even in the individual life, this is true. Paul in Romans simply said this in chapter 820. He said, for the creation has been subjected to frustration. But then the writer says, here's where we stop and we take this amazing big breath where we go, because the writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus. There lies this amazing hope. This is a hope that goes beyond simple imagination. This is a hope that enters into every part of life. The possibility of something other than what we are seeing now can only be accomplished because in it we see Jesus. This is our one hope. With the eyes of faith, we see Jesus already crowned, reigning over the universe, The man Jesus fulfilling our lost identity, our lost destiny. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, there's a scene where John beholds the one seated upon the throne of the universe. Well, 10,000 times 10,000 angels are crying out in unending, undying worship before the throne. And the call goes out looking for one who is able to open the little book 
with seven seals, which is the title deed to earth, the right to run the earth. A search is made through the length and breadth of human history for someone wise enough, strong enough, compassionate enough to open the seals, but no one can be found. John says, I wept and I wept because the one, no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, this is John speaking, said to me, do not weep. See, the Lord of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and all its seven seals. And when John turned to see the Lord, to his amazement, he saw a lamb, a lamb with blood staining its neck, a lamb that had been slain. And as he watched the lamb step up to the throne and took the little book and and all heaven broke into this one amazing ear-splitting applause. For here at last was found one wise enough, strong enough, and compassionate enough to solve the problem of the human race and to own the title deed of earth. That's our Jesus. This is what the writer of Hebrews sees here. You see, we see Jesus who alone has broken through the barrier that keeps us from our own longings. The longings that in the end only capable of destroying. And what is that barrier? What is it that keeps you from being what you want to be? What is that that keeps us humans from realizing our dreams to be in charge of something? It's put in one grim word. It's called death. Death, though, in this passage, as in many places of scriptures, does not simply mean a funeral. It includes more than the ending of life. Death basically means uselessness. It means waste, futility. Death, in that sense, pervades all of life. You can see the signs of it all around us. What is death? Boredom is death, and and loss of purpose is death, as well as frustration and depression of spirit, anxiety, worry, fear, despair, and defeat, along with all diseases. They are all these are the initial acts of death. It's the robbing of our very spirit of that which is called life. The funeral is about the final straw to our earthly existence. Or as Shakespeare put it rather bluntly, he said, Life's but a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Ouch. (laughs) The argument of Hebrews is that life apart from Jesus Christ is simply that. At the end of our life, God may say to you and me, it was a most remarkable performance, but the trouble is you missed the point. It signifies nothing. But Jesus fulfilled the qualifications of our heart, of our hope. Unless we can insert Jesus into that equation, then no matter how it might look in our eyes or how significant it may appear, it is still nothing unless Jesus is at the core of that very thing, our life. No. Jesus fulfilled the qualifications of our hope. He became lower than the angels. He took on flesh and blood. He entered into the human race to become part of it. He experienced death. Not only the death of the cross, but also he he tasted death's pain 
for every one of us, which undeniably should have rightly been our place. And the result was pretty substantial. So we see that in Jesus Christ, we have been invited into a new race of humanity, a nation that includes himself and and all those who are his. And to that nation, the promise is that we shall enter into all the fullness God ever intended us to have. Listen to the way Paul puts it to the Colossians. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his majesty, which is, now you have to hear this, folks, because this isn't just a cute little saying. This isn't just some sort of theological idea. This is a life-explosive, transforming reality. This God that we talk, or this Christ that we talked about that is 100% God and 100% human, this one that we call Jesus Lord and Savior. No, Paul says, this riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Something that can expand our imaginations beyond. Well, in fact, it takes us into his ability where he says that he can do more than we can ask or imagine. There's a whole new definition to life when we allow the real Jesus to enter into our world. Not the Jesus that we have perhaps manufactured. Not the Jesus that we have become just sort of comfortable with. Not the Jesus that we hope will show up when we need him. No, I'm talking about this real Jesus Christ. The Son of God, 100%. This one who took on humanity 100% is so wanting to enter into our very worlds. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the first reason Christ became man. To recapture man's lost inheritance. The second reason why Christ became man is to recover our lost unity. Listen as Hebrews 2, 10 to 13 is read for us. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. See, the earthly life of Jesus is referred to in in one phrase, perfect through suffering. Well, that begs, at least in my head, the question, was he not perfect when he came? When Jesus was a baby, was he not perfect even then? When he was tempted in the desert and Satan tried to turn him from the cross, was he not already perfect? When he was feeding the 5,000 in compassionate ministry to the hungry multitudes, was he not perfect? Why then does it say he must be perfected by suffering? Well, we must understand that there are two perfections involved here. He was perfect in his person all along. 
The scriptures make this abundantly clear. After all, he was fully God, but he was not yet perfect in his human work. Maybe this will help you to understand. It's a bit of a weak illustration, but, but for example, young people may be perfect in health, perfect in body, perfect in strength, but are not yet perfect in the work they were called to do. Suppose Jesus Christ had come full-grown into the world a week before he died. Suppose he'd never been born as a baby, but stepped into the earth full-grown as a man. Suppose he'd uttered in one week's time the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse, and all his teachings recorded in Scripture. Imagine that he came on Monday and on Friday they took him out and crucified him, hanging him on the cross. Certainly he would have been perfect as far as bearing our guilt is concerned. Would he still have been a perfect Savior? Yes, because that only required a sinless Savior. Certainly he would have been perfect as far as bearing our guilt is concerned. The only requirement is that he was perfect in himself as far as sin was concerned. But he would not have been perfect as far as bearing our infirmities, our weaknesses is concerned. Part of the mystery of this Godhead, this full God, this full man. He would have been able to fit us for heaven someday, but never able to make us ready for earth right now. In such a case, we could always say, as too often we say anyway, how can God expect me to live a holy life in my situation, right? After all, I'm only human. Christ has never been where I am. What does he know of my pressures? What what does he know of what I'm up against? But because he was made perfect through his suffering, the living of real life as we know it, he does know our suffering. He was advanced in this human side of him as it were, so that he was able to walk in our steps that he could take our infirmities upon him and understand the meaning of that, that he could face the temptations that are common to us all. And though we know he did not sin, he felt the anguish of temptation. He was a man. He knew what it was to feel the struggles of pulls that the world would give, but he stood strong. But he knew it. He walked where we walked, as only a man could. And because what we see in Jesus is that the moment he felt fear gripping his heart, he immediately leaned upon his father and that fear was met by faith. The moment he felt uncertain, he rested upon the wisdom direction of his father and he would go off into solitary places and had some rather lengthy conversations, I think, with his father as he approached the next day. Because he fully entered into our fears and pressures He is fully one with us. That is why it can be recorded here. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Or as one translation says, are all one body. Or another translation says, all one lumped together. The writer quotes from the Old Testament to illustrate this, showing that the attitude and relationship that he had is the same as we have. It says here, this is out of the Psalms, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. He likes us, folks. And again, I, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I, the children of God, and here am I and the children God has given me. Now, Christ. 
Christ came with the purpose of becoming completely one with us and we with him that all that could divide us are removed. John writes in this gospel as he records Jesus. I don't think this prayer was some, some prayer intended for heaven or after death. No, he's, he's talking about now. It's in, the, it's in the present tense. That they may be one father even as we are one. There was a picture that God had in his mind for you and me that we struggle with. But it's one of unity. He wants to pull us together. We are his sons. We are his children, his daughters. We are that. That's the reality of redemption. We are that. Christ came with the purpose of becoming completely one with us and we with him, that all that could divide us are removed. Now, there's still some work to be done. Yes, yes, we are human. Yes, I'm not speaking about some sort of, some sort of, utopia that we are to live here. No, no, we're going to struggle. I just want us to have faith that's big enough to believe beyond your present struggle. I want you to see that there's a God that wants to engage you where you are right now and claim you as his sons and daughters so that we can enter into a world, a life with him that is not defined by the circumstances in the world around us. He has in his imagination something amazing for us. But by faith, we're going to have to embrace it. And in order to do that, we're going to have to accept the Christ who is the Christ, not one of our making. We're going to have to see him for who he really is. We're going to have to understand that his hand is held out to us in ways that are absolutely amazing. Well, Second reason was he wanted unity. Here's our third reason, is to release us from our present bondage. Listen now as Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 is read. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I wish we could start all over again and start the sermon at this point. There is so much hope and possibility in those few verses that were just read to us out of Hebrews. Now, though, don't be confused here. When it talks about Satan and the breaking of power, is the devil silenced? Is that what this is saying? Has he quit working? If we mean by breaking the power that, the eliminate, that this eliminated him, obviously the answer is no. The phrase means to render impotent, to nullify, to render inoperative, inconsequential. That is the idea. 
The devil has not been eliminated, but the devil has been rendered impotent through Christ. That's why we need to see Christ for who Christ is. Because if we see him for anything less than that, then we can't believe what we just read. For we will then just be sucked right back into our struggles and our failures of yesterday and Well, maybe struggles we've had for the last who knows how many years. But when we can get a picture of who Christ is, now all of a sudden the possibilities are magnified for who he can make us to be through him. No, Satan has been rendered impotent through Christ. But, and this is a big but, it's not to everyone. (laughs) Only under certain conditions is this true. But those conditions are available to all people who receive this Jesus Christ for who Jesus Christ is. We can't just glibly say Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. No, that's a definition of who he is. The one living within us, Lord and Savior. Savior not just for our sins. Savior from all that the enemy wants to bring against us. Savior from everything that the fall, uh, that we inherited from the fall. No, he is our Savior. He is Christ. This is what he is saying. When we enter into this relationship with Christ, we discover that what he says is thrillingly true. We should get goosebumps on this one. There is a freeing from lifelong bondage. The devil does not have the power of death in the sense of determining who dies. No, only God has that power. But the phrase, the power of death, means the grip of death, its fearsomeness, its terrible quality. That fear of death is stripped away from those whose hope is in Christ. And bondage, therefore, is the result of sin, manifested through the flesh, But death is the absence of life. Death is not something in itself. It's simply the absence of something. And Christ moves in. He moves out, desires to move out, that which brings death. Someone gets hit by a car. The the crowd gathers around and wonders if there is any life left. Doctor may come, examine the body. And what does he look for? Evidence of death? No, no. He looks for evidence of life. And if he can find no evidence of life as he searches the body of that person, he finally looks up and he says, I'm sorry, he's dead. Death in all its forms is the absence of life. You know the one you call Christ? He's the author of life. You know the one who comes in you, Christ in you? He's the author of life. When he looks at us or the world looks at us, what they should see is not signs of death, but rather signs of life, hopeful life. For us humans, absence, more specifically, of the abundant life, that's the death, the purposeful life. The fear of this death, this loss, is the devil's whip, the writer says, by which he keeps us in slavery and bondage to all our life. Non-Christians, of course, have no escape from this. But even we Christians, in failing to understand the kind of freedom that Christ brings, frequently experience this loss, kept within our own bondages. Let me give two examples. First, it's, it's the present civil unrest that's found throughout the cities of this Western world and beyond. And what's behind this? Why are people so restless these days? What's going on that feels so dark? 
The issue as it's being publicized through the news is the matter of freedom of speech or lack of it along with oppression or perceived by certain people groups. And in a sense, it's, it's accurate. There is conflict going on, struggles on both sides, along with a desperate need for power and control and two people doing this rather than coming together. People want a particular freedom in life. There's no doubt about that. They want to live life to their prescribed fullness. Who does not? To a degree, this too is right, but the concept of freedom may be wrong. I'm not attempting to judge the situation. There's obviously right and wrong on both sides. But in analyzing this, I see beneath the restlessness a constant hunger for life. But to so hunger after life exposes us also to the devil's lie. The freedom is found in self-expression. It's having what I want. It's doing what I like. It's going where I want to go, acting as I please and getting my rights and getting it now. It's the fear that we're going to miss out on life. The fear of death mentioned here. That's the devil's whip to drive us into activity on a principle that leads us into more and greater death. Here's a second thought. There's a man who believes that money brings happiness. If he can just get certain things in his life, he will be content. And since he wants to be happy, he devotes his time to getting all of this. But while he is collecting his stuff, he is losing what is more important. It's a long story. I'm sure we've all heard it. Because he's afraid that if he doesn't pursue his own described happiness, he will miss out in life. This is precisely stating the situation that's being lived out day by day here in our own world. So how does Christ deliver us from this? The glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the cross reverses our values. In its light, we are able to strip away the devil's lie and to act upon a totally different principle of life. And the principle is this. Freedom is not having what I want. Boy, oh boy, it's even hard for us. I bet you you some of you, maybe all of us at some level, start to argue against that. Freedom is not having what I want. No, it's doing what God wants. That's the upside-down flip on this one. It's the the person who gives up who gains. It's the person who flings away their life in abandonment to what God wants who finally learns to live. It's the one who who tries to keep one's life who loses it. Isn't that what Jesus said to us? The man or woman who steps out upon this principle that freedom is not having what I want but doing what God wants will discover that the devil is impotent that they are set free to live the kind of life God intended them to live. They may not have some of the things others may have, for things do not produce happiness. It's not a guarantee that they're going to be perfect in everything that they do and every decision they make, but all of a sudden they got their priorities in line that can only lead them to the one who can give them the hope that they're craving. But they have what God wants them to have. That's the point. Life lived to the fullest degree possible. That is the third reason Jesus Christ became man, to reveal to us and to release us from our present bondage. Let me recap. Christ became a man in order to recapture our lost destiny. We're going that way. He wanted to correct it. Christ became man to enable us to recover our lost unity. There was separation. He brought us together. Christ became a man to release us from our present bondage. 
There's a lot in there, isn't there? If we're willing to learn the reality of this, if you know Jesus Christ personally and that you can come directly to him, you know this, right? We can go there to him anytime, any place, and find that his ministry is to bring you under the shadow of the Almighty, that protective care that only, as we sung, a good, good father desires for his children. That is what he suffered for. And the writer of this letter to the Hebrews is deeply concerned that we Christians get it. And so my question to us this morning is this. How much have you discovered this total ministry of Christ in your own life? Only you can answer that. But it's worthy searching for, spending some time in silence listening to what God really wants to say to you, going to the word that can provide the instruction plus the correction, But it is a critical question because your faith isn't just about forgiveness. It's about finding freedom because you are forgiven. He became a man not only to recapture our lost destiny, but also to bring healing. Not just physical healing, relational healing, emotional healing. To bring us into the unity of one life in him. To release us from daily lifelong bondage to the fear of losing out on life. And to bring us that sweet healing ministry which in time of failure restores us to fellowship without condemnation. All I'm trying to say is that as a child of God, the sky's the limit, which begins now because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf by coming to this world, taking on our humanity to die for us. Get excited as we move through this journey into the amazing book called Hebrews. This is a, this is a broad, broad picture with so much information in it. But I'll tell you, as we walk week by week by week, chapter by chapter, into this amazing truth, we're going to discover that the idea of transformation isn't just something that sells books. But in fact, it can become a reality in our daily living. God wants to take us from this to this. No questions asked. He just wants that for you and me. It will lead you to and through the life of Christ. God bless you. Let's pray. For Father, we need hearts open to this. We need eyes that can see as, 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 we, as, as you see. We pray, God, that you'd give us a freedom that would allow us to embrace what the enemy has told us isn't possible. That we would, in fact, find a, a new hope and a new life that will carry us into a different kind of reality. The one that you gave your life for. And though, Lord, we'll struggle this side of glory, let's not just close the door and wait for heaven, but let's discover that the abundant life is for us here and now as we walk in you. In Jesus' name, amen.